What I'd like to talk about tonight is um, to present some type of scenario in terms of the end of time and um, and uh, and the, the the scenario itself consists of certain different ideas which in many ways are very important and they're certainly very significant you know but it is a scenario which I believe certainly can happen uh, whether it will happen that is to be seen but I want to explain a scenario which fits uh, as far as I see with the Chazal in terms of what happens at the end of time now what I'm going to say is, is really pre-Messianic which means what is the the bridge that leads from the Golis to the Messianic age in other words what happens uh, before the Mashiach comes now specifically what that means really is what happens in terms of the Golis, the exile now we know that we are in the exile of what is called Edom we know that and that really is the last exile and that of course is the longest exile of all and we know that when uh, Yaakov uh, uh, had the dream of the latter he saw each exile you know first there was Babylon uh, and then there was uh, Persia Greece and then Rome he saw them all going up and then all going down the ladder but when he saw Rome go up the ladder and then he, he, di he didn't see it going down he saw it going up and up you see and he was wondering to himself will the exile of Gul uh, will the exile of Rome which is really the exile of Asaph who was Edom will that ever end you see so God said to him do not worry it looks like they're going on and on and will not come down which really means that the exile will persist but I will bring them down now we, we can ask a question actually you know why does it look like the exile of of uh, Edom or Esau Rome or whatever why did it look like it went on and on and it would go up the ladder and not come down is this some type of a secret some type of a hidden concept in that and as I will show you I believe that there is uh, and this will be consonant in terms of or consistent in terms of the scenario of the end of time which basically is the is the goals um, so like I say uh, now let me begin therefore by looking at uh, a posuk a verse in Parshas Nitzavim and it says the following, which I, I've mentioned before. It says that Im and if your outcasts, means the Jews that will be outcasts, right? Throughout the entire world. even if they will be at the ends ends of heaven, from there the God your God will gather you and from there he will take you unto himself and that Pasuk is it says there now one of the interesting things uh, an aside actually that I'd like to say is it really should have said and if you are exiles or outcasts 
be at the ends of heaven from there I will gather you and from there I will take you it really should have said at the ends of earth because the exiles are not at the end of heaven the exiles are at the end of the earth because they are spread out throughout the entire planet which actually is what we see today that the Jews even though they only number about 14 million Jews they are spread out throughout the entire world they're the only nation really when you think about it that is spread out throughout the entire planet wherever you go you'll find a Jew which is amazing no matter what country or even islands in the Pacific you will always find Jews so certainly that prophecy has been fulfilled so the question that I'm asking is why does it say at the ends of heaven and the, the interesting idea to that is because a Jew is never of the earth no matter where a Jew is no matter how far away he is no matter how far away he is from spirituality and religion he's still only at the ends of heaven and never on the earth why because we know the essential idea of a Jew is that he's a metaken, masaken. he can rectify creation that's what he does and therefore his influence is felt primarily not on the earth but in the heaven itself therefore since he has his primary influence is in the heavens and therefore the Jews are well, even if they're outcasts their outcasts are at the ends of heaven because really they are more heavenly than they are earthly which is interesting because that's where his influence is primary where he's masaking he rectifies creation which means he brings in the illumination or the light of God into the world so therefore since he has that influence he is really a resident of heaven as opposed to earth but in any case uh, this is what it says uh, in the Pusik. now that Pusik reveals in many ways some very fundamental ideas what are they? what it reveals in many ways is the following it uses, it says God says in the end this is the end of time that in the end of time I will bring you all back and it doesn't make a difference where you are you could be at the ends of heaven or as I say at the all over the planet and I will come and get you he will gather you and he will uh, take you to himself that means he will come and get you no matter where you are so there's no such thing as any Jew that is lost in some way God will retrieve him and bring him back so that's one uh, a very important idea another very important idea is that it says that God will gather you what does that mean? that is that uh, gathering you means that there in the exile itself he will gather you what does that mean? that means he will separate you from the exile itself he will separate you from the, from the, the, the goyim, the, the Gentiles and that's what it means means he will separate you from the non-Jews in the exile itself so some type of phenomenon will happen where the Jews will become distinct as a nation you see even though they're in the exile itself and then it says he will separate them and we will see how 
But then it says, Yikochecho, he will take you. Yikochecho means God will take you the way a man takes a wife. It says in the Torah, Ki yikach ish isho. If a man will take a wife, he will marry a woman, he will acquire a woman. So when God says, Yikochecho, he will take you, he will acquire you. That's the zivog. So not only will God gather you and separate you from the exile, but he will also take you to himself as a man takes a wife. What does that mean? That means he will shower you with an incredible dvekus, attachment, a tremendous rise in consciousness while you are in the exile. This is interesting. It's not like he will take you to Israel and over there he will raise your consciousness and see an incredible divine illumination. But he's going to do it Misham, there, in the exile itself. Because it says, from there he will gather you. That means the gathering happens there. And from there he will take you. That means taking you, which means giving you a tremendous illumination, will happen there in the exile itself. This is what we see. You see. And that's a, in many ways, that's a very important concept. Now, what's also interesting is, how does this happen? Well, it says a posik in the Novi, in the Prophets, in one second, I will abandon you. God says that the totality of when I will, when I will abandon you, the exile itself, it will only be for a second, a small instant of time. But but I will gather you, right? right? With tremendous rachmim, mercy, which indicates many, many different ideas. It indicates that there's an incredible amount of compassion and divine mercy included in the end of time. Even though the Jews, according to the justice, may not deserve it. But God will exercise tremendous rachum gedolim akapseich. Now, that akapseich, I will gather you, is the same as, right, even if your exiles be at the end of heaven, from there I will gather you, that is the same expression. So therefore, that expression where it says, from there I will gather you, is with rachum gedolim. Which is very good, because that means that the Jews will not be frightened and forced out. On the contrary, uh, the, the end of the exile will happen with tremendous amount of mercy and compassion. And that is a very important concept. Now, this is what we see, uh, that the Torah is saying that the end of the exile will happen in the exile itself. And God will come into the exile <coughs> and redeem the Jews. Very important idea. Now the question is, how? What does that mean? That God says, I will gather you, right, in the exile itself, and I will take you to me. What does that mean? Well, there's a Medrash Rabbo, an incredible Medrash Rabbo, that says the following, okay, this Medrash Rabbah is in Parshat Sav, in Vayikra, okay, uh, in the, the third section. Here's what it says. Omar Rabbi Huna, Rabbi Huna says the following. Ein ha-geluyos halolu, miskansois. 
these exiles will gather these exile will only gather only because of learning Mishnayis that's what it says you see that's an incredible statement what Rabbi Huna is saying is that the merit of the exile must happen because of the learning of Mishnayis it's amazing now what is Mishnayis? Mishnayis basically is the oral law there's the written law and then there's the oral law which is right? so it says in this Medrash that the Geula, the redemption or the end of the exile because it says these various exiles are miskansois, are gathered which is the idea of only only because of the learning of the oral law this is what it says. Now the question is, how do we understand this? And why is that, why is that so? Well, let's take a look. In that same Medrash it says, by Avram Avinu, when God spoke to Avram Avinu by what's called the Brisbane Absorum, the covenant between the pieces. So God said that in, in the merit of what you have done and so on, I'm going to let the Jews have the whole concept of korbanus, kachim, sacrifices, which is a tremendous merit that they will be able to sacrifice to me and that will accomplish great spiritual things for the Jews. Uh, this is what the Rabbani Shalom says to Avraham Avinu. And Avraham Avinu says, wait a minute, in Nevoah he saw that the Beis Hamikdash would be destroyed. So he said to the Rabban Shalom, wait a minute, this is good as long as the Beis HaMikdash is standing, which is the temples, the Mishkan, the first temple, the second temple, and so on. But after the second temple, there is no more Korbanus. So what do you mean that you will give them this great merit of Korbanus, the sacrificial uh, regimen, the Beis HaMikdash, and so on? How will that happen? So the Rabban told them something very interesting. Uh, he said that normally when you, there's two mitzvahs. One mitzvah is to learn the Torah, and the other mitzvahs are, is to do the mitzvahs of the Torah. So it's two ideas. To learn Torah is one, which itself is a mitzvah. And the second is to do the Tariyag mitzvahs, to actually do, perform, execute the 613 commandments. You see, so God told Avraham Avinu an incredible concept. He said, when they learn about Kachim, when they learn, which is the Mishnayis actually, when a Jew learns Kachim, even after the destruction of the temple, I consider this, I consider it as if he performed the Korban, as if he brought the Korban, which is an amazing concept, you see. Now, what that Medrash is saying is that that applies not only to Kachim, that if you learn about the mitzvah, God considers it as if you've done the mitzvah. Uh, it's true not only by Kachim, but really it's true of Kola Kula. If you learn Torah, God considers it anywhere in Torah. God considers it as if you have done that mitzvah of what you are learning about. That's what the Medrash brings down. So Rabbi, Av, Rabbi Huna is saying an incredible concept that if you learn Torah 
right? Not only do you get the mitzvah of learning Torah, but also the mitzvah of doing the Torah. So therefore, learning Torah has two dimensions, whereas doing a mitzvah has only one. To do a mitzvah is one dimension, because you get the reward, right? You get the, uh, the incredible spiritual illumination that the mitzvah gives you when you do the mitzvah. That's one dimension. But if you learned about that mitzvah, right, then it's two dimensions. You get not only the reward for learning the Torah, which is the uh, greatest illumination of all, spirituality of all, but you also get the, the illumination that comes from doing the mitzvah, even though you only learned it. There's two dimensions. And by the way, that's how we understand Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam, that learning Torah, right? Keneged Kulam is, is not only greater than all the mitzvahs, because that's usually what it's meant to be, meant to understand. Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam, right? Learning Torah is, uh, is uh, opposite or parallel, or rather, is greater than the accumulation of all the, all the uh, mitzvahs, doing the mitzvahs. It's the greatest mitzvah of all. But it's also Keneged Kulam. It's also as great as all the other mitzvahs, because when you learn Torah, you're also doing the mitzvahs. So obviously, since it has both dimensions, therefore learning Torah is Keneged Kulam, is worth more, is greater in spirituality than all mitzvahs combined. Why? Because not only are you getting the mitzvah of learning Torah, you're also getting the mitzvah of doing the Torah, because that's what Rabbi Yehuna is saying. And what Rabbi Yehuna is saying is that it's not only true of kachim, kobonus, sacrifices, but it's even true of every mid, um, uh, Mishnah, every learning Torah that you do. It's as if you have done kola Fine. But what does this have to do with the exiles being gathered in? Okay, it's nice, it's incredible. That if you learn Mishnah, which is the totality of the oral law, right? So that means is that you get the mitzvah not only of learning, but also of doing. Fine. And not only of korbanas, kachim, but also of uh, the entire Torah that you learn. Fine. But why is it that he says that the exiles will only be gathered, which means the exiles can only end only because of um, um, uh, Mishnayis, because you learn Mishnayis. That is the question. And the answer is an incredible concept, which I've said many times, that God is not going to bring a redemption to Jews which are gone, which are completely assimilated, intermarried, and completely gone basically as Jews. He's not going to do that. And I mentioned a long time ago why. Not only will God not do that to his children. Remember, Jews are his children. And he's not going to take his children that are filthy with sin and have nothing to do with spirituality. He's not going to all of a sudden expose them to a redemption that will be beyond comprehension. He's not going to do that for because a, a father or a king doesn't want to do that to his son, the prince, you see. But not only that, but it's also, I had said a long time ago, that the Mashiach is not your ordinary individual. And he's not, he's not your ordinary great tzaddik. What is he? In the, in, in the Pasuk in Yeshayahu, it says, Hine yaskal abdi, behold, my servant will grow wise. Okay. 
And then it says three expressions of growth. The Yoram, he will, he will uh, exceed, grow, okay. The Yoram, the Nisa, and he will be uh, uplifted. The Gova Mioid, and will become exceedingly high. So the Medrash asks, why does it have three expressions? Well, the Medrash says, who is Yaskel Abdi? Who is, uh, behold, my servant will grow wise? Who is that? So some of Foshim learn it means the Jewish people. At the end of time, uh, they will grow wise, which means that they will emerge from the Golas, become a holy nation. But the, the Targum says that Yaskel Avdi, my servant will grow wise, refers to Malka Meshicha, the Mashiach himself. Now, the Medrash asks that when it means grows wise, right, why does it say three expressions of growth? So the Medrash says that the first expression, which is Viyoram, right, that he will be raised high, that means that the Mashiach himself will be greater than Avram Avinu. Can you imagine what that is? We can't. But this man will be greater than Avram Avinu. Then it says, Veniso, and he will be raised. So the Medrash says what that means is that this person, Mashiach, will be greater than Moshe Rabbeinu, which is astounding. That means he will be greater in spirituality than Moshe Rabbeinu. Now we have no idea of the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was a person who spoke to God face to face. How could we possibly understand who he was? Half man, half God, as they say. Chatsi ish, chatsi lokim. Yet the Mashiach will be greater than Moshe Rabbeinu in spirituality. And then it says the last expression, the Gova Mioid, and it will become very high. So the Medrash says that it means that he will be greater than the Malachim, Malchashorus. He will be greater than angels. Imagine that, a man like that walking amongst us, who's greater than Avram, greater than Moshe, and greater than the angels. Yet he's only a man. He's a human being. Now, because of this, in many ways, the Mashiach is the most dangerous person who ever lived. Because how do you stand next to a person like that? How do you even stay, stay or talk to someone like that? His Kedusha, his holiness is so great that you would succumb. You would just die. Just like the Jews died when God appeared to them in the first two commandments. The holiness was too great. That prophetic vision was too great. The dvekas was too great. The attachment to God was too great. So therefore, in order to equalize it, right, then God will not do this to the Jews. He will not bring the Jews while they are Tomei. Because the Mashiach in his full-blown potential, actual, actual uh, actuality, will be far too great for them to tolerate. What will he do? He will rehabilitate them. Exactly. He's going to change them while they're in Golis. This is the incredible thing. He's not going to bring them to Israel and then do it there. You see? He's going to do it while they're in Golis. And that's what it means. Bishul Mishnayis. But how will he do it? And the answer to that is Mishnayis. Why? Because Mishnayis is really Torah Shabbat Peh. It is the in totality of the oral law as well as the written law, you see. But it is a totality of the oral law. 
And as such, right, he wants the Jews to know the totality of the oral law, which is Mishnah's. But what's also interesting, which we see, is that since they will learn the Mishnah's, right, it's as if they have done all the mitzvahs. So by learning Mishnah's, that itself would be sufficient to raise all the Jews to an unparalleled level of, the, of knowledge of Torah. Because through Mishnayis, they will have learned the entire Torah. And because they learned the entire Torah, all the mitzvahs, it will be as if they have executed or performed all the mitzvahs. Which will change every Jew who will have gone through this from somebody that was lost totally, right? And it will have changed them to be incredible tamid chachomim. And now the Mashiach could come, of course, and begin to uh, interact and deal with the Jewish people. Uh, that's what it means. In other words, Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuna is saying that the exile, you see, must end in a rehabilitation, you see. And how can you rehabilitate the Jews, right? And the answer is the rehabilitation takes place because they will be taught Mishnais. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, because that's what he says, that these exiles will, will only, be, only be gathered because they learn Mishnais, which means that before the exile, before the redemption, they have to learn Mishnais. That's what it says. Because if they don't, then there's no merit for them to be redeemed. That is an incredible medrash, you see. Now, the, the question is, what does it mean? You know, is it possible to learn Mishnais in a short amount of time? Because we're not talking here about learning for years. But the truth is something very interesting. Most people don't realize the extent of information that is in the Mishnah. There are 4,192 Mishnais in the Oral Law. Each Mishnah has, on average, eight halachas. A Mishnah is a paragraph that has a paragraph of a collection of halachas, laws. They spell out all the details of the Taryag Mitzvahs of the six hundred thirteen commandments. But in each Mishnah, which is each collection of each paragraph, it's about eight halachas in each paragraph, each Mishnah. So eight times. 4,192 Mishnayis, or paragraphs, is what? Is 34, 35,000 Yediyos information about the entire oral law. Isn't that astounding? But if you think about it, it's not Mishnayis, but it's what's called Mishnayis Be'iyon, in depth. What does that mean? Because Mishnayis is missing a tremendous amount of information. Because what Rebbe did is, in many ways, he wrote a record of the oral law, not a text. So therefore, Mishnayis, in many ways, has to be taught by a Rebbe, you see. So therefore, the Mishnayis itself, if you add in all the information that's missing in the Mishnah, before the Mishnah is learned, it's called pre-Mishnayik, or in the Mishnah itself, or post-Mishnayik, then the amount of information in the Mishnayis, which is called Kula, is greater than over 100,000 Yediyah Satera of the entire oral law. Could, so could you imagine having learned that 
and also knowing that and also be considered as if you performed over 100,000 different yadis or halachas, it's astounding. So that merit by lifting themselves from this terrible darkness that the Jewish people are in, that will bring about the redemption. But what is important to know is that will happen in the exile itself. And that is very important. Now, just as an aside, is it possible to learn this amount of information in a short amount of time and that that can qualify as a merit for the redemption according to Rabbi Huna? And the answer is yes. Most people don't realize that the real way to acquire information is not to do it in a fragmented way. You see, if you have a jigsaw puzzle and you look at the puzzle, right? Uh, and you, let's assume you have a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, right? What are you going to do? And you want to put it together. You're not going to look at each piece and try to figure out what's going on. It's a thousand pieces. It's all fragmented. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to ask for the box. What is the box? The box has the picture of the completion of the entire jigsaw puzzle. And then once you have the box, then you can begin to do the puzzle very rapidly because you can see what each, where each piece fits because each piece fits in terms of its relationship to every other piece in the puzzle. So by looking at what's called the overview, you see, or by looking at what's called the scope, the landscape of the entire picture, you can easily do the jigsaw puzzle, even a thousand pieces, rapidly. Well, imagine if you took the Mishnah, you see, and you sort of like rearranged the Mishnah into a sort of like a different type of text, which is called a map, a Mishnaic map. Imagine if you looked at every halach in every Mishnah, right? You saw exactly where it fits in the entire scope of the, all the halachas. Then you would have the same thing called the big box. You would see the totality of every halacha in a map. Think about it. A map. A geographical map. Reveals three things. It reveals the geographical point, the nature of it. Is it a city, a town? Is it a lake, a road, a river, or whatever? So it reveals the nature of the physical geographical point. The second thing it reveals is the relationship between all points. And that is the concept called distance. So you see exactly how each part of that map, how far each part is from the other, its relationship in terms of distance. And the third thing you see is what's called its orientation. Well, are the pieces north, south, east, or west of each other? Now with a map, therefore, which is the entire overview, it's connecting all the dots to the individual pieces geographical points. You can actually go from Los Angeles and drive to New York, never having done it before. You see? Of course, today they have Waze, but Waze is basically a map. You see? Well, why can't you do it to Mishnais? Where you arrange all the halachas in the Mishnah, right? You look at the overall landscape, the scope, how every halacha is connected to every other halacha in this huge diagram. You see, if that's the case, 
that you could learn Shisha Sidwe Mishnah, six orders of the Mishnah, 4,192 Mishnahis, you could learn it in two years. That's right. And since, and it lends itself beautifully to a diagram, a physical diagram, you see, because it's like a map. So for retention, it's awesome. You'd never forget it because the mind loves, loves visual information, you see. So therefore, it is possible to be able to master the entire oral law and like say, Bi'iyun, with tremendous depth because that would all be included in the map of the Mishnah itself, you see. And therefore, anybody taught that way could master the entire oral law in two years. And he would be a massive Tamad Chochem. Now that presents a lot of very interesting ideas for an educational system. But what I'm trying to do is connect it now to why, how in the world can you, is the Rabbanisham going to propose Mishnayas and we're not talking about sitting and learning for the next 30 years. Obviously, it's going to happen very, very rapidly. So therefore, uh, that's basically what is going to happen and so on, you see. Uh, now, how do we understand this in terms of the redemption? So we now understand certain very important ideas. One is that the Geula or the redemption or the release from the exile will happen in the exile itself. And not that the Jews have to be chased from the exile, you see. And there, in Eretz Yisrael, it will happen. From the Pesukim we see, it's going to happen, Bisham, in the exile itself. The second thing is that when it does happen, right, God is going to raise the Jews in terms of spirituality, learning, and spirituality. And as a result of that, they can now uh, receive the Mashiach bin Yosef, because that's really who it is, you know, and that will be the redemption itself. And we see that from the Medrash, where because of the learning of Mishnayis, which is the entire oral law, that is the merit for the redemption itself. And I explained also how educationally, by having what's called a Mishnaic map, how that's actually possible. Now, the question is, where will it happen? Let's take a look. There's a Pesach we know, and Pashas told us, where Yitzchak and Rivka, Rivka was having tremendous pain giving birth, even before. And we know it was Yaakov and Esav who were doing battle inside of her. So she went to the house of Shem Eva to find out what is going on here. So they told her a very important prophecy. Now this is a nevuah. This is a prophecy which is very, very important, which means it must happen. They told her the following. One, shnei goyim bivitneich. There are two mighty nations within you. In other words, there are two individuals. From them will sprout two mighty nations. However, do not think that it will be the same. Okay? They will separate from you. Or they will separate from you and from themselves. They will be different. What is their difference? 
One, they will separate because they will never be equal. One will always be greater and more powerful than the other. So if you have one nation on high, you know, great, then the other nation or the other child will have that nation will be uh, tremendously subdued and vice versa. When he goes up, then the other one goes down, you see. But in the end, what will be the outcome of all this? Imagine you have two children that will give rise to two nations. Both are great, but both are different. And both in many ways are rivals. It's a tremendous amount of rivalry here. But in the end, Rav the older will serve the younger. That's a nevuah. That's a prophecy. That whoever the older one is, that child, that nation will serve the younger child and the nation of the younger child. That's the way it's going to end. And ultimately, that's what has to be. Now, how does it fit with today? It's a very important posuk. Because what it reveals is the following. Let's go back to the posuk. Two nations will be, great nations are in you. Two individuals, Yaakov and Esau, you see. And both of them, both of them will be very great. This is what it says. Okay, now, what does that mean they're two great nations? Because they are both Jewish, ostensibly, right? And both of them will be responsible for the tikkun. Tikkun means both of them will be, in, will be charged to rectify creation. But what will happen? But they will separate. Means one will do the tikkun in the direct way. The other will do the tikkun in an indirect way. You see? And that will be, what's the indirect way? That they will rebel or they will have a tremendous rivalry with Yaakov. Esau will rival with Yaakov. But Esau will also do the tikkun. But his tikkun will not be direct, it will be indirect, which I will explain. Okay? But in the end, Rav the older will serve the younger, which Esau ultimately, and his nation will serve Yaakov and his nation, which are the Jews, right? And that will be directly, which is interesting. They will assist Yaakov. So you will have, you, the, the prophecy now turns it back to the original statement where there will be two great nations, you see. Now, what does it mean to be direct, to do a tikkun directly, rectify directly and indirectly? Well, what happened was, is after Yitzchak gave the blessings to Yaakov, Esav comes in and he says, well, you know, I'm here. So Yitzchak says to him, who are you? Right? says, I am of your firstborn. So Yitzchak, of course, immediately realized what happened, that Yaakov came and took the brachas, right? So Esav says, bless me too. So he says, I can't. Why? Because I already gave the blessing of the tikkun, which is the whole purpose of creation, to rectify, bring God back. I already gave that to Yaakov, and therefore he will ultimately will do the tikkun and subdue you. Uh, so Esau said, but don't you have anything for me? So Yitzchak said something very interesting. 
he said to Esau, right, that I will give you a tikkun challenge, but not directly, indirectly. What does that mean? That if Yaakov's children sin, and therefore they have to be punished in order to uh, atone for their sins, you will punish them. Your nation will be in charge of rectifying their sins and punish them. You see? So therefore, since they get punished, Yaakov, as nation, Jews, therefore you will be considered as having brought a kapora, an atonement for the children of Yaakov, which of course are the Jewish people. So indirectly, you will have allowed Yaakov and his children, the Jews, to rectify creation. You see? Uh, and that's what he told them. That's the blessing, the bracha, that he gave to Esau. What do we see? That Esau is still involved in the tikkun, except it's a sort of like a backhanded manner. It's indirect. That he is responsible to bring the Jews back to God by giving them suffering. And suffering, we know, of course, is an atonement for their sins. You see. But what's interesting is that the Medrash says, right, in the end, what does that mean? That means the tikkun process of Esau has two stages. One is Rav, not where the older will uh, serve the younger. But the Medrash says, very interesting, that Rav can be read since the Torah has no punctuation. The word can be read because there's no punctuation in the Torah. So therefore it says, Rav, the older Yaved shall persecute, enslave Tzoya, the younger. <clears throat> you see, so what that means is that based on this Medrash, that really Esau has two stages. Stage one is where he will do the Tikkun indirectly by bringing tremendous amount of suffering and pain to the Jewish people in order that they should be atoned for their sins. But the second stage, which he has, is Yavoid. He will serve the younger. He will assist Yaakov and the Jewish people, you see, to do the Tikkun. That's a prophecy. And that prophecy must happen. So from that prophecy, we see uh, that both do, do the Tikkun, except the Tikkun of who? Of Esau has stage one, which is indirect persecution, and has stage two, which is direct, where he actually assists Yaakov to do the tikkun by creating a climate in order for Yaakov and his children, the Jewish people, to do the, uh, the tikkun itself. That sets the stage for what is happening. Now, did that ever happen? Yes. We have been persecuted, I mentioned. Who was Esau? Esau became, the Torah says it's Edoim. Edoim, right, became Rome, right? So Esau, Edoim in Rome, of course, persecuted the Jews. Rome became Christianity, which of course has persecuted the Jews for 2,000 years. And Christianity is Western civilization. And I mentioned that there are three parts the last year. There's Russia, okay, there is Europe, and there is America. You see, that tells us something very important. That the aspect of Esau, when he does the Tikkun, directly or indirectly, right? There are two kinds of Esau's. 
One is the Esav of stage one, which is called the Rosh of Esav, the evil part of Esav, because he is punishing the Jews and making them and giving them tremendous suffering. The second part of Esav, right, is called the Tev Shev Esav. You see, that's stage two. And that's called the good part of Esav, you see. And therefore, what we recognize in many ways is this three-part uh, uh, three parts to Esav now, right? Russia is the evil part of Esav. Europe is the evil part of Esav. And I explained this the previous year. But America is the good part of Esav. Tev Esav. You see, so we now begin to see something fascinating with the prophecy of Ravi Avoitzoir, which is stage two now, is happening. You see. Now, did we see this happen before? And the answer is yes. Because Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who was a Roman emperor, right, who was the emperor of Esau, actually was the Tevshib Esau. He, in some way, he deviated from the normal plan. He went from stage one, Rashab Esau, the evil part of Esau. He went to Tevshib Esau, which is the good part of Esau. How? Because the Gemara Navi relates that he loved Rebbe, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yudha Nasi. Uh, and what he did was astounding. He was so enamored of Rebbe that he removed the tax burden of Tamid HaChomim in Tiberias. And therefore, they were able to learn without a tax burden. So he actually created a climate where Jews could learn Torah. Interesting. You see, what Torah did they learn? Well, we know that Rebbe realized that the oral law is in the form of Mishnahis because there was no Gemara yet. Now in the form of Mishnahis, there were many different types of Mishnahis. Each Rebbe, each Tano, because that's what they were called, had his own version of a Mishnahis, which he would teach his students. But Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yudha Nasi realized that you need a standardized form because Rabbi Yudha Nasi realized that the Jews are now going to go into exile. And they have to have a standardized form of Mishnahis, which is the entire oral law, or else it would not last, it would be forgotten by the Jewish people. But he, in order to do that, he would have to call a convention of all these Tanoim, and each one would recite their Mishnahis, and Rebbe would pick what he thought was the best version, educationally that is, right? And he would standardize the Mishnahis the way we have it today. But how could you do that? If Rome is persecuting the Jews, they kill Jews if you learn Torah, like they did to Rabbi Akiva. So therefore, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, what he did was created, since he was the emperor, he created a tremendous peaceful environment, you see. So therefore, Rebbe was able to call the convention and standardize the Mishnah, the Mishnah, right? So that the Jews can take with them the oral law completely in a standardized form comes out that Marcus Aurelius Antoninus actually created a climate that Rebbe could now use to do what? To create a version of the oral law that the Jews could now take. Mishnais, you see? So therefore, the Toyv Shebeisav, which is Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, actually allowed Rebbe to create the Mishnais, which you think about is astounding. That's the merit of Esau. But wait a minute. 
Is this the Rasha Beisov? Of course not. It was a Tevsh Beisov. It was a good part of Esav. But the good part of Esav is not only then, but destined in the end to do the same. Which is also Mishnayas, if you think about that. You see? Just like Marcus Aurelius Antoninus allowed the Mishnah to be created, and that's his merit, an incredible merit, then he is also allowing in the end of time the Mishnah to be disseminated, not just created. It's almost like a recurrence of the old form of Esau or the Tevshib Esau. So we now begin, begin to see the tremendous link here. The concept of the Rashib Esau, which is stage one Esau, and the concept of the Tevshib Esau, the good part of Esau, which is stage two Esau. You see? And we see now that Marcus Aurelius Antoninus actually is responsible as a stage two Esau, which is Tevshib Esau, to create the Mishnais. You see, he actually enabled it to be created. But in the end of time, Rabbi Yavetzor also means, what? That the older, or the older will serve the younger, which means he will assist the younger, which is also, as we know, will happen at the end of time. And what will happen at the end of time? The tremendous dissemin dissemination of Mishnais, which is exactly what the Medrash says. Tremendous amount of cohesion here, you see, and how they are all integrated. Now what we see, we can now understand in many ways what is going on, you see. <clears throat> you know, you have to think about something. What is going on today is completely irrational. It, in fact, it's very hard to believe what is happening today, especially in terms of the election. You see, why? Think about this. It's irrational. Why do people hate? Now, I have mentioned before that Donald Trump, in many ways, is a reincarnation of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. You see, which means that he is the Tev Esav. He is the good part of Esav. In other words, he's part of a messianic process, which is fascinating. And I once mentioned that the Gematria, the numerical value of Donald Trump's name is Mashiach ben David. Not that he is the Davidic Messiah, but that he is part of a process which we now can begin to understand. <clears throat> you see, what doesn't make sense is this psychotic rage and hatred of Donald Trump. Now, why does it make sense? Because let's take a look. Look at what he did. In many ways, in his three and a half years of being president, he, is, he, he has created historical changes in America, you know, in terms of unemployment, in terms of security, in terms of so many other things, you know, uh, the economy without going, getting into everything and so on, you know. So why do they hate him so much? The, the second idea is who's running against him? You know, normally you have people running for the presidency, you know, they, they're not polar opposites. You know, you have one variation of what he would like to do, you know, let's say Trump. Then you have another variation of another candidate, say Biden. You know, usually they're not that far apart. You're not, you don't have polar opposites. Well, one is diametrically opposed to the other in terms of their policies and what they wish to do. Uh, but here you find that Biden is a polar opposite of Trump. You see, 
which is amazing to watch. Not only that, what's amazing is, why would anybody vote for Biden? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not recommending uh, one as opposed to the other. I'm merely pointing out the facts. What, what is happening is so bizarre that we've never seen it before. Why? Uh, because we know that Biden is co cognitively challenged. So he would never have a chance. It's not that they want to vote for Biden, but they hate Trump so much that they will not have him. And they're willing to have somebody who's basically cognitively challenged or senile. <clears throat> Everybody knows that he's just going to get worse. So how can you have somebody who is basically senile or grown senile, whether he has dementia or he has uh, Alzheimer's, whatever, how can he lead America? Especially when America needs tremendous leadership because it is failing in every which way and so on, economically and so on. So that's the first wonderment, you see. And the problem, of course, is that he can be manipulated since his mind is failing, you see. The second thing is that not only is Biden senile, you see, but what has Biden done? He's been in government for 44 years. He has done nothing significant at all for 44 years. So he's, he's not running on a record. He has no record of achievements at all. And 44 years of being vice president and also in being the Senate for, I think, 36 years or whatever. He has no record to run on, you see. Yet people are still want to vote for him. It's completely irrational, you see. Not only that, but there's evidence that he himself admitted to that he's really a criminal. It's called bribery, you know, with Ukraine. That he actually threatened Ukraine to withhold money if they don't fire the prosecutor that wanted to prosecute his son, Hunter, who worked for a company called Burisma in Ukraine. And he says it on tape. He openly admitted to bribery. That's a crime. People don't care. So that's the third reason how could you vote for this guy? You see, uh, in any case, you know, the fourth reason how you can vote for him is he wants to change the fabric of America. He wants to take a country which is the most successful country in the history of the planet, right? It's capitalistic and liberty, it's freedom. You can do whatever you want and so on, right? And he wants to change it into a socialist, communist country which has failed all over the world. You take a look at every communist regime. <coughs> every one of them has failed. Not only failed, they have become dictatorships. And they have destroyed their country. Just classic. You know, take a look at Venezuela. You know, and so many other countries that have been destroyed because they have been communists. And just look at what happened to them. And Russia and so on, you know. And this guy wants to change the entire fabric of America, which is basically liberty, freedom, and capitalism, where you are completely free to do the market, whatever you want. This has made America the greatest nation on earth in, 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 in history. Yet he wants to change America into a socialist, communist countries, you see. And not only that, so that's another reason why, how could you vote for, for Biden? It's irrational, you see. Not only that, he wants to defund the police. He said the police are enemies, which means there's no safety or security. You defund the police, of course. Uh, so Biden is totally opposite to what America needs, and that is safety and security. 
because he wants to defund the police. And maybe what's worse is the groups that he has allied himself with, socialists and communism and so on, Antifa, they are anti-religion. They are against religious freedom, which is exactly what's going to happen. So therefore, America will become a tremendously anti-Semitic and anti-Israel country. What do we see? This is incredible. This is what's going against Biden as a candidate. Yet nobody cares. Now, it is so irrational that it is, I would call it, it's a miracle. It's a ness. You know, it defies comprehension of how all these negatives against Biden, people still want to vote for him. Even though there's no economy, there's no jobs, and so on. Defies imagination. You know, that's a miracle. When you see an irrationality, which is so great that it makes no sense. People don't act that way. And even if there was a person who acted that way, so maybe it would be one person or a couple, but not, not hundreds of millions of people in America. You know, it's almost like America has become psychotic. But that's a miracle. How do we understand that? And not only that, but like I said, the miracle is not only that Biden has nothing to offer as a candidate, you know, but every look at what Trump has done, completely different. And the only answer to this, when you're looking at a, 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 um, a choice, a psychotic choice, which is a, a ness, it is a miracle you should know. When you're looking at that, it can only be one thing, that this is the end. That's right. That's what it is. The Sutton is dying. And it's the end, you see. What he is desperately trying to do is take Asov from stage two, which is the Tevshab Asov, which is Trump, and he's dying to replace it with Asov stage one, which is the Rashab Asov, you see. Because he knows that stage two Asov, Yavoid Soir, that he will do what? He will assist, right? Serve the younger. He knows that, which means that he will enable the Jewish people to do the tikkun. He can't have that. He's desperate to change the Rasha base, or I should say the Tevshe base, of, which is represented by Trump, you see, to change it in the Rasha base, of, which is represented by Biden, the Democratic Party, the radical liberal Democratic Party. You see? Why? Because he doesn't want Asov in, in stage two assisting the Jews where it says Rav You see? He wants the evil of Asov, which of course is the Democratic Party. He wants to revert it back to stage one. Rav And therefore, uh, power has been granted by the Sutton to enable people to convince people, you know, not to vote for Trump, which is, which when you think about it, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be comical. Because nobody in America would ever have even thought of voting for a guy like Biden if it wasn't for the fact that they hated Trump so much. Biden wouldn't, wouldn't have a chance. Nothing. Yet with all these negatives against him, which I have mentioned, people are still thinking about voting for him. It's incredible. Like I said, as far as I concern, consider this, it's a nest niglo. Because the Sutton is dying, 
and he's desperate to change Esav, like I said, from stage two, uh, which is a good part of Esav, which helps the Jews do the Tikkun to stage one, which persecutes the Jews and basically in many ways tries to stop them and kill them for doing the mitzvahs. This is what you are looking at in the election of 2020. It's amazing when you think about that and so on, you see. Now, the interesting thing about that, so, so far that's what we, we see. Uh, where did we see a parallel to this? And the answer is Egypt. We, need, we know it says, He need go out the Eschem Achis Croatius, that behold, I will redeem you the second redemption, which is the end of time, Croatius, like the first time I redeemed you, which was Mitzrayim, which is Egypt. Egypt, therefore, is the model in so many different ways of the redemption itself. You see. Now, if you think about that, let's take a look. What the Rebbe Hashem did in Egypt. He took Moshe Rabbeinu, who is Mashiach ben Yosef, almost Mashiach ben Yosef, <coughs> you see, and he told him to go to Egypt to redeem the Jews. But Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't as great as he was later on. It was only after Matan Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu became the great Moshe Rabbeinu. Before that, he was basically potential, he himself. So he goes to Egypt and he encounters the Jews. Now the Jews were in Memteshar Tumah. The Jews were in exile in Egypt. And they were at the 49th level of Tumah, of defilement, you see. Uh, so he goes to them. Now, what we are going to witness now is exactly what's going to happen in this exile. Just look at Egypt. What does he do? He goes to Egypt, and the Jews are in the Memteshari Tumah. What are the Jews today in the Memteshari Tumah? Make no mistake, America is really the 49 levels of defilement. <coughs> Not evil, defilement is different. The morality, the immersion in morality, okay, which we now see, as I had mentioned, the whole concept now of same gender marriages, homosexuality, and not only that, but the immorality of an enormous pursuit of materialism, almost the exclusion of everything else, basically means that the Jews are basically gone. 11 million Jews are gone. They do not observe Shabbos, or Mikveh, Taras Mishpacha, right, or Yom Toivim, or whatever, they're gone. That's the equivalent of the Jews being lost, you see. So, Moshe Rabbeinu comes, right? And what do we now know will be in the end? They have to be elevated, right? You know, they cannot receive a Torah with Moshe Rabbeinu, what's called B'tikunoi, when he is as great as he will become, right, initially. So God has to elevate them. Where? In Egypt. That's Misham. God has to separate the Jews from the Egyptians, right? That's what we learned. Mishomikabetzcho, that he will separate you. But how? And he does it this way. He does it through the Makkas. What are the Makkas? Uh, what the plagues of Egypt were, or the blows of Egypt were, was really the ten spheres. Now each sphere is a force that God emanates. But the force allows you to see God in a certain aspect. It's a certain type of illumination where you can see God in a certain way. And there are ten of them. 
So what God did is he took the spheres and he physicalized them. In other words, he changed them. I mean, he allowed them to express themselves in a physical way, analog. So the ten makas, <clears throat> right, from Dam all the way to makas Bechiris, is really the ten spheres. But the Dam, which is interesting, the blood, and actually they line up. Actually, Dam is Malchus, not Keser, and Makas Bechiris is Keser. So it goes from the bottom to the top. But in any case, <clears throat> what did he do? He assaulted Egypt with ten plagues, which was really the spheres, right? The ten forces of God, right? That <clears throat> uh, uh, destroyed the Egyptians, you see. But you should know one thing. That's not only what it happened. God allowed the Jews to see the spiritual light of each sphere while he was destroying Egypt. So every sphere had two emanations. The first emanation was its physical analog where he destroyed Egypt with the plague. But at the same time, it was a light that the Jews saw whatever the sphere represents in terms of the illumination of the divine nature. They saw that simultaneous, you see. Uh, so what he was doing is raising the consciousness of the Jews. We see that, for instance, by Makas Choshech, darkness. It says, Yisrael, and to the entire Jewish people, You see, uh, there was light. What does that mean? It means not only that there was darkness to the Egyptians, you see, but there was light to the Jews. And that darkness was not the normal darkness, which is an absence of light. It was a darkness that we really cannot even comprehend. The darkness becomes an actual positive existential thing wasn't an absence of light it was something that was akin to the original creation when it says that darkness was not the absence of light it was an actual positive entity so the egyptians got that but the jews in their dwelling right they received light that is the spiritual illumination of each makkah in egypt you see, so it had a dual purpose. For the Egyptians, it was destruction and death. For the Jews, it was spiritual illumination and closeness to God. You see, it was simultaneous. So therefore, that's the Mishomi Kabetzcho. From there, he will gather you, which we're understanding now is going to happen in the end. But it really happened in Egypt. While the Egyptians were being destroyed, right, from there in that exile itself, in Egypt itself, what God did is he took the Jews, right, and he gave them incredible spiritual illumination, which is what uh, elevated the Jews, you see. Uh, so for the entire year, the Jews were being elevated, and that's akin to the Mishnahis of the end of time, but it was different. Instead of them being the Mishnahis of the Halachas, because the Torah had not been given, it was the illumination that the Mishnahis of Torah would offer. Later on, it was being presented then as the Ten Spheres. You see, and therefore, the consciousness of the Jews was being risen, you see, which when you think about it is amazing. And also, it was V'yikochecho, and God took them. And just like in the exile, he would take the Jews to himself, right? Which is, like I said, a zivug, 
that's God marrying the Jews, where he will not only uh, they will, uh, be, have a spiritual illumination, but they will have a tremendous spiritual uh, uh, phenomena, phenomena, spiritual phenomenon also. <clears throat> so the same thing happened in Egypt. God was destroying Egypt, giving the Jews a tremendous rise in consciousness, right? Which is the illumination that came. But you'll notice something interesting in the last Makkah, how did God kill the Egyptians, the firstborn of the Egyptians? Because it says, Oid nega echod, yet one, yet a nega echod, yet I will yet bring the plague of one. That's what nega echod. It really should have said, Oid nega acher, I will bring another plague, which is the firstborn, the killing of the firstborn. But it doesn't say the word acher, it says echod. So what that means is a tremendous giloi, the way God killed the Egyptians. You see, it was the plague of the one, where God in many ways revealed himself to Egypt. And they all died because of that revelation. Uh, and therefore, if the Egyptians died because of the revelation of the oneness of God, then that also was an illumination to the Jewish people. Because remember, every sphere, every makkah had a dual purpose. That was V'yikochecho, which is amazing. But of course, V'yikochecho, God did then outside of Egypt, that was in Egypt, the plague of the firstborn. But outside of Egypt was called, of course, the Matan Torah, where the Jews really received. V'yikochecho really happened as a stage two by Matan Torah, where God united with the Jewish people, right? Literally, when he appeared to them for the first two mitzvahs. So what do we see? We see that this really happened in Egypt. Same thing. That God entered Egypt. Misham. He gathered them by destroying Egypt and separating the Jews from the Egyptians. And by giving incredible illumination to the Jewish people. You see. And then he took them by revealing to them tremendous amount of spiritual light and illumination. And that therefore, since that's what happened in the first exile... That is also what will happen in the second exile, you see. And therefore, both are in conformity to each other. They both parallel each other. So from here we see an incredible scenario that the exile will end in, in America and Europe itself with the, the Jewish people rising in a tremendous spiritual consciousness and so on. How exactly that will happen is unknown. But we see from the Psukim that this will happen. And remember, will the second stage Esav, the Tavshab Esav, will that be canceled out? No. <clears throat> that is a prophecy that must be fulfilled. And that prophecy is the end. Rav Yavoy that the older Esav must serve the younger which means he has to be part of the Tikkun process. So that would certainly say that uh, the election has to really be for Trump, obviously, and not Biden, and so on, you see. Now, besides that, there's something else. Uh, remember, a Mashiach cannot come as long as there's an heir of Rav in the land of Israel. And that's really what it is, you know. I don't know if you, people are aware of this, but there's 1.5 million children in the public school system in Israel. 
And the one who's in charge of religious education, basically there is no religious education in the public schools. 1.5 million kids, which is incredible. There is no religious education. But the, whatever there is has been granted to a, an institute called the Hartman Institute. And the Hartman Institute is basically reformed. So what they are doing is creating courses. Not only is, is it devoid of basic Jewish history, it's devoid of hashkofa, you see, and mitzvahs and so on, and yom toivim, and everything that goes on in a, in a regular yeshiva and so on. <clears throat> but they are actually teaching them pluralism, where there are many forms of Judaism, and all forms are okay, which is even worse. Because it's one thing if you're ignorant, you don't know anything, so at least if somebody comes along and presents a version of Judaism, then you'll buy it. But what happens if you've already been taught that there are many versions of Judaism? It's much harder to convince a person to come to your version. And that's exactly what's happening. Well, who is doing this? Who is destroying the youth of Israel? There are 1.5 million kids. That's the whole future of Israel. Who is doing that? The answer is the of Rav. We cannot even begin to understand the evil of what is happening to the chinuch of the Jewish people in Eretz Israel. You see. <clears throat> and we know that when Paritz asked Moshe Rabbeinu, who do you want to go out with? So of course Moshe Rabbeinu says, Benureinu, without youth, without that, there is no future. Yet the government of Israel sits by and the ministers of education sit by and allow the infiltration of unbelievable apicosis, minus heresy, into the public school educational system. So with that, of course, the air of Rav has to be dismissed. You see, which means the whole government, BB, and everybody else has to be dismissed. And how could the Mashiach come to such a country? How can there be a spiritual enlightenment when the air of Rav is destroying the spirituality, basically, of Israel. It's really incredible when you think about that. In any case, so what has to happen, basically, is the era of Rav has to be uh, uh, evicted, totally. And in its place has to be an intermediary, somebody who will be the intermediary to begin to change Israel toward a spiritual path, you see. And that's not so difficult to do, you see. And that intermediary, right, he will be between the heir of Rav and also Mashiach ben Yosef, you see. And he will be the intermediary that will allow a beginning of a whole different change to the uh, educational system um, uh, of the Jewish people and the religion of Judaism to the Jewish people, you see. Uh, and it's not so hard to do without compulsion. You don't have to compel anybody to be religious or spiritual. What you can do is provide money. You can provide money to all the Kirov organizations because they're very successful, you see? And the state of Israel itself can provide not only money, but tremendous amount, tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, oh, the wherewithal to disseminate uh, you know, uh, spirituality to the Jewish people and even, even in diaspora. They can help an enormous amount. Uh, so that certainly has to happen, you see. Now, I want to mention something interesting, which is a remez, you see. In Parshish Nosoi, when it talks about the Nesim, the princes 
of Israel, each one it says brought a korban, a sacrifice. And this was, of course, at the dedication of the temple, of the Mishkan. And by each one it says, it lists all the korbanas, what they brought. But in each one it says the word atudim. And atudim is a he-goat. But the interesting thing is atudim, right, is written without a vav. So you can read the word asidim. Asidim means future. And there are 12 of them, you see. So it's almost like the Torah is alluding that there will be 12 nesiyim, 12 prime ministers of Israel, 12 of them, okay? And Asida means this will be the future, you see. And there will only be 12. And the last one, it says, Himoshach, it mentions the concept that the, the, uh, the temple or the Mishkan is uh, anointed with oil, the Mizbeach, and so on, you know? So is that a remez? That there will be only 12 prime ministers of Israel. And by the way, Netanyahu is number 12. There are only 12 individuals. Some of them had more than one term. But as individuals, there are only 12 of them. Netanyahu being the 12th, you see. And does that mean that there will only be 12? And then there will be the intermediary, you see. And a messianic figure will come right after that. But the main idea is that um, this is what it seems is a scenario of the end. Because in the end, what does God want? When he says that I want to redeem the Jews from there, right? What that really means is that God wants to uh, reunify with the Jews. Yes. That, what the, the essential concept of exile is that the Jews are separate you see, from God, their king and their father. And all of this is really about what's called the reunification between the Jewish people and God himself. And that's the yikochecho, that God wants to unify with his people, you see. <clears throat> but the amazing thing is that there are many steps that have to be done beforehand, you see. And in the end, basically, this seems to be the scenario, you see. Now... What the exact scenario, of course, is, we don't really know except in very general terms. But from the Medrash which I brought, that it's only because of the Mishnahis, and from the concept of, you know, the Nevoah, of the two stages of Esau, and we are looking at the last stage, and the Sultan is dying, is desperate, and we're looking at a miracle uh, that we've never seen, completely irrationality, that Americans want somebody that is completely inappropriate to be a president and so on, that that itself is a ness, you see. And not only that, <clears throat> you see, the end of the era of Rav, it's, it's interesting when you think about it, both are happening simultaneously. In America, America is at the brink, you see. And in Israel, there are tremendous protests going on, and even um, Israel is at the brink in that sense, you see. And um, both of them are happening simultaneously. So it could be that this Rosh Hashanah will be the greatest Rosh Hashanah ever experienced by the Jews. Because we know on Rosh Hashanah, that is when the decree is. And it's very possible, hopefully, that this Rosh Hashanah, God will say, enough is enough. It's over. <coughs> and I'm going to remove 
the enemies of the of the uh, of of the Torah. I'm going to support and obviously strengthen the good part of Esav to help create the climate in Israel to do the tikkun. You see, and that he will remove the air of Rav from Israel and bring in somebody else, uh, totally somebody else. You see, who will be an intermediary. And that person will be the intermediary step before Mashiach bin Yosef. Thank you.